Why don't we continue where we left off last evening? Move into a somewhat different direction, but an extension of what we were talking about. You recall we were we talked about small sufferings and small liberations that appear in daily life and used a rather humble example of the yogurt. And that was in the context of a way of looking at whatever comes up in our practice that was akin to a naturalist watching the ways of nature. And that was contrasted with a mode that very often we fall into, which as useful as it may be, is not the perspective of Dharma. By and large, it's not. And that is, we tend to see the things that come up in the mind as indications, when they're negative, of personal problems and personal defects that we have, which must be corrected. And then we busily set out devising all kinds of self-improvement programs to do this. Not that there's anything wrong with that, and some of that helps. But in contrast to that, the frame of reference that uh, we use in this approach, in Vipassana meditation, is to see these particular states of mind and body as conditions, natural conditions that arise and pass away, that don't belong to us, that are not self, that we don't own, that in a sense are homeless, wandering through the universe, coming and going, that lack a core, that are subject to their own lawfulness, but then we grasp onto them, different mind states, different conditions of the body, we grasp onto changing conditions, identify with them and then think of ourselves as being that. And we put together a self from those materials and suffer a great deal as well. So it was suggested, perhaps it should should be a question, is it possible or even useful to examine our own mind and our own body in much the same way as a naturalist observes birds or vegetation or sea life? I'd like to continue that, um, bringing it into another area which has become, or perhaps always, but certainly there are signs of it now as well, uh, an area in spiritual life, in Dharma circles, meditation circles, the problem of self, personal identity, 
again now, seeing it in a very ordinary context and trying to suggest small ways in which suffering appears and disappears during the day. And then I'd like to bring you in on it because uh, I hope that some of you have been, of all of you, have been perhaps seeing instances of things like the yogurt example in your own life here. Before we do that, I'd like to say a few words about self-knowledge, self-images, and perhaps you could even say addiction. A number of magazines and books recently have talked about American society as being an addictive society. That there are just so many addictions that uh, it seems if almost the whole society is addicted to one thing or another. Now, I don't really know if that's true. I don't know if things are any different than they've ever been, except that we use the word addiction for perhaps what was called attachment, craving, clinging, greed, hatred, and delusion, derivatives from that. Maybe nothing's ever been any different. Perhaps the things we grasped onto and hurt ourselves with change, but maybe the the mechanism is exactly the same. I really don't know. Perhaps it is justifiable to use a special term like addiction for what's happening to us now. But if so, and that meaning pointing to drugs, alcohol, food, everything is being called it now. Work, love, aren't there people who now think of loveaholics, people who must fall in love periodically? and by extension, must fall out of love periodically. Did I leave any out? Money? Sex. Sex? Well, that's it. That one is that. What? Video games. Gambling. Gambling, very big one. Thank you. What might be the, uh, maybe we can call it the supreme addiction or the ultimate addiction, uh, is this tendency of the mind to constantly describe itself. Have any of you noticed that? The mind, yeah, you have? That is, if you watch your mind, I think it's pretty hard to escape the fact that it is endlessly describing itself to itself. Encouraging itself, discouraging itself, (laughs) patting itself on the back, promising itself what it will do, promising where it will be if it only does, reviewing the past and pointing out how it won't do that again or it will do that again. (laughs) And it's very strong. I mean, it just seems to have to talk about what it is. I'm a this, I used to be a that, and if I come to enough retreats, I'll be a something else that's neither this or that. And it just goes on chattering day and night, even in our dreams. There's hardly ever a break. I think we get a few hours when there's no dreaming. That's what scientists tell us, so that finally there's a break. But it's doing a lot, and I think you could call it an addiction. And I say ultimate because there seems to be a problem there. 
if the mind were really secure, or the self, about itself, or what it was, or what it was doing here, what its place is, or how to be secure, would it need to be doing that so much? It seems to be transparently fragile. That is, the mind is doing all this uh, self-evaluation and uh, encouraging, it seems because it is fragile and not sure of itself, of what it is or what it should be or how it should be. And perhaps it's out of that problem of the I, of the self, that perhaps some of these other addictions are really derivatives. They're not the fundamental problem. That is, if the self were intact, assuming there is such a thing, or at least in the way in which it seems to characterize itself, would it be necessary to compensate or to go to such excesses in these other realms? Perhaps not. Again, it's just a speculation. But it does seem as if the root problem is not the particular content that one lands in, whether it turns out to be alcohol or drugs or the racetrack or food. Those seem to be more symbolic And there's something else much deeper. And it has to do with that big question, who am I? Or perhaps, what am I? Who is already, there's already an assumption there. What is a little bit more radical? If that's familiar to you, in other words, you know that it's a a tangible thing, that the mind is doing a lot of this, and it's tiring. And it doesn't really seem to work. So what I'd like to talk a bit about is self-image and self-knowledge, a difference between the two, and bring it into a very ordinary context so that we can see that perhaps this is helpful for us in our practice in a very concrete, concrete practical way. So the, the mind's um, constant need to describe itself to itself, either in pictures or in words, conclusions about itself, I'm this. Those are images, creations. The mind perhaps takes the materials that the culture provides us and now we have so much to play with. There are whole industries. If we don't have enough ideas as to how we should be, there are industries devoted telling us, giving us incredible options about how we should look and dress and what we should be like. The media, advertising, etc. So there's no shortage of building blocks to put together what we think we ideally should be. Those images are rather fragile. These verbal conclusions and images. You see a car very nice car drive down the street and suddenly an image pops up in your head like a secretion. You can't help it. And there you are in the car, let's say it's a Mercedes, driving down the street uh, with a content look on your face and some imagined admiration in the background of people you don't even know who they are, but somehow there's a lot of approval coming directed, aimed at you because you're in this car dressed appropriately for the car. Okay, now, we don't write this script. It just comes out like digestive juices. It just gets secreted. They, you know, and versions not quite as melodramatic as that. 
So one of the aspects of these images is that they supposedly stand for us. They're representing themselves as being us. And there can be a lot of very wonderful qualities in that scenario. It can be, uh, and if you're in Buddhist circles, I'm kind and sensitive and, of course, aware and vegetarian. What else? What is the good Buddhist? I'm never angry or violent. Celibate. Uh, very generous. Compassionate. Gentle. Confused. <laughs> Confused. I don't wear makeup if I'm a woman. And I don't dress, I don't wear a three-piece suit if I'm a man. What? And, I, and I do wear Birkenstocks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there could be something like that. And then, of course, we have negative images. It's uh, the mind, for most of us, perhaps all of us, at this level, <clears throat> hasn't fully decided whether it likes itself or not. And so it will have flip side idealizations, which are like Frankenstein, you know, the ghost, the, the wolf man or wolf woman, whatever, just horrible uh, pictures and descriptions of ourself, um, which periodically jump up and they represent themselves. No, this is who you really are. You thought you were a Buddhist driving a Mercedes. <laughs> But your son or daughter are Frankenstein. Hitchhiking. What? Hitchhiking. Hitchhiking. In your Birkenstocks. And these images of ourselves, we laugh easily about it because it has a ring of truth. But it isn't all that much fun. Unless, of course, you become a super-duper meditator, then it's hilarious. I mean, the whole show, it's an ongoing movie. And it's not $5.50 or $4.50. The images are just that. They're images. They're quite fragile. And unless you take the trouble to really examine your mind, we don't fully know them very well even though they're having a lot of impact on our life, we don't want to look at, at them, even though we're forming them, creating them constantly. And so, perhaps now and then we get a glimpse, perhaps during a trauma. Someone pokes at it, and suddenly you're forced to look at it. Somebody points out a glaring contradiction. You thought you were all these Buddhist qualities, but they saw you kind of devouring half of a cow in a restaurant somewhere. <laughs> And they walk in and the blood is pouring down from your <laughs> face. And they said, I thought you, you were a Buddhist, vegetarian, nonviolent. I'd never fancy meeting you here in, in um, Charlie's Steakhouse. And suddenly there is defensiveness and you feel humiliated and embarrassed. Because the image has gotten threatened. There's something it's almost shattered, almost broken into pieces, lying on the restaurant floor. So it's a lot of work. It's a big burden. 
carrying around these images, and yet we carry them a lot. Now, the images cover up, they're kind of a mask covering up the actuality. The image is just a, like the relationship of a snapshot to a living person who goes through many different phases and looks differently even in just an hour, many different ways. So the images are gross simplifications of what's actually happening. Self-images, which the mind is constantly churning out, are very different from self-knowledge. Self-knowledge is a broader thing. Self-knowledge can include self-images because the awareness can see these, this process, what the mind is addicted to. It can see that as part of its understanding of itself. But self-knowledge, as we're using it in our practice, is the moment-to-moment observation of what is actually happening, our actual feelings, our actual deeds, If there's a moment of generosity, fine, we see that. That's what it is, a moment of generosity. If there's a moment of selfishness, then there's a moment of selfishness. Sadness and so forth. But there isn't any one phrase that can be used to say, that's it, that's who I am. Because you can try, try pointing to any of it, but it changes. It's impermanent. It's not there in a little while. And then something else comes up, often contradictory or inconsistent. So there's really nothing you can point to and say, that's the real me, there I am. Now, it's all covered over by the image. The image masks it and in a way shields us, if we want to be shielded, it shields us from the raw natural, the raw nature of what we really are, of how The mind unfolds from moment to moment, sometimes a saint, sometimes a sinner, and so forth. Clearly, a lot of us don't want to know. We'd rather have self-images and do all the work that it takes to prop them up and patch them up get new ones, fresher and newer and bigger ones. We'd rather do that than take a look, sort of lift up the mask and see just what is going on. What, what is actually this that is called me? What is it? Because we have to look at a lot of things, some of which are not appealing. And the practice, our practice, is learning how to uh, develop what the Buddha was a master of, which was come what may seeing. You might call it that. It was once in one sutra, it's called that. Come what may seeing. That is, the willingness to look at whatever turns up. Come what may. There you are as Frankenstein. There you are as your favorite movie star. And none of us have that at the beginning. It's something that we learn. We're learning. We're learning how to develop this ability to open up to whatever is there. And we pull back from time to time and perhaps fall into images to simplify things and think that it's a relief. But when you look closely, perhaps you find it isn't. It's very hard work. 
So a lot of the practice is seeing that. Certainly at, at certain stages of the practice is self-knowledge. Coming to see in concrete detail the actuality of what it is that we are rather than uh, any kind of name, name tag that we slap on ourselves. Now, these names can be useful for conventional reasons. I'm not saying that we can't use our personal name anymore. You know, uh, I can't use my name because it's so diverse that it's just absurd to call it any one thing. It's all right, you can keep your name. Or, you know, to have occupational titles or gender titles. or It's necessary for communication. It's just, do we know what they mean? They're not in themselves causes of suffering. Okay, in a typical day, this process of whatever you want to, let's say, selfing happens many, many times. That is, the I is born, it operates for a while, and then it dies. The I perhaps is born as a meditator. Perhaps you've had a good sitting, a really good sitting, and suddenly your posture gets straighter, and there's a nice expression on your face, and you go do the walking, and everything is different. You feel like you're a meditator whatever that would be, but sometimes an image is formed, or you're a Buddhist. And it's consoling. It feels nice. I'm a meditator. Or I'm a teacher, or I'm a student, whatever. What we find, if we look carefully at the mind, is that these particular instances of self-description arise and pass away, and they cause suffering. But see if you find that. Let me give you an example that happened to me. And again, it's one of those small sufferings and small liberations. I'm kind of collecting them because the big ones are obvious enough. When someone dies, when a relationship ends, uh, we get a serious illness But by and large, that doesn't make up most of our life. Most of our life is made up of really yogurt and all kinds of little shifts in mood, slight disappointments and expectations that are not met and irritability. A few weeks ago, I was in a natural foods restaurant in Boston. It was uh, the first macrobiotic restaurant in Boston I have to give you this background, or you won't understand how trivial my mind could get. (laughs) And I was one of the first customers to ever go to it. I think I might have even been there the first night it opened, being a health faddist, but I'm not sure. But it was very early. And it used to be just a little hole in the wall. For those of you who live in Boston, it's called the Sun Eye. Now it's called Seventh Inn. And over quite a few years, I've gone there off and on, but regularly. Um, and, since, and during that time, the restaurant has enlarged quite a bit and is, uh, it's no longer a hole in the wall. It's very nicely done over and much larger. Seems to be doing pretty well. Many people coming and going. I've eaten there a lot. And during all those years, not only have I eaten uh, that food a lot, but I've also put in my time studying it and trying various diets and fasting and 
you know, all of it, the whole natural foods approach and somewhat macrobiotic, but not completely. And so just recently with this background, I don't know, perhaps 15 or 20 years of 15 years about however long, a long time. I go in and I sit down and here's this new waitress comes up. If she's been on a job a week, it's a long time, but really a new and very new, to, new and extremely enthusiastic about macrobiotics. <laughs> and so I sit down and I happen to, I think, be dressed. I think I had a, a jacket and a tie that day. That's also important. I think it is. <laughs> anyway, my mind thought it was, so I have to bring it in. And I sit down and I know, I know that recipe uh, like I know uh, my telephone number. I know every item, all the dessert, everything. I've eaten there a lot. And this waitress who's never seen me begins with her what we call a wrap about natural foods and macrobiotic, you know, explain yin and yang, you know, all this. And suddenly in my mind, a little uh, deeply insulted, <laughs> little, little critter pops up in the mind. And, you know, it's just furious with this sincere, sweet person trying to do her job well, who's learning about natural foods and is really happy that she's found something nice to put some constructive energy into. And in the meantime, this little creature in my mind is really resenting her and thinking of her as patronizing and condescending and, uh, and also seeing how she, she probably, and she went into a fair amount of detail and thinking that, uh, oh, so you think I only wear a, uh, a shirt and a tie. Well, in, in, when this restaurant first started, I wore beads and I had a mustache. <laughs> and I had long hair. And, and this all took about 30 seconds. And I held back. I mean, I, I didn't cut her off and say, hey, look, will you knock it off? You know, I, I don't want to hear your macrobiotic rap. I'm Michio Kushi. I invented it. So I restrained myself, but there was definitely a period of mild suffering there and a period of mild humor and as I saw it and it fell away and I sat there smiling, a somewhat sheepish smile as, and I let her finish it, being a good Buddhist. Wow, after it was over and the smoke cleared, you know, just, I had no control over that. I had no choice. It's not, now, I could decide that I read what the Buddha said, and, you know, that selfing is no good in the ego, and we get into attachments to it, and it causes suffering. I'm just going to be egoless. I'm just never going to do that again. All these spiritual teachers are right. I'm just going to go through life egoless. And maybe I was for 10 hours, and then I go into a restaurant, my guard is dropped. You know, there's nothing particularly threatening or serious here. And what happens? Someone very innocently starts describing a menu and in a very considerate way gives me a few hints as to what the different foods are good for, what conditions and all that, daikon, radish, you know, all of that. Uh, and my little ego gets, goes into action like a secretion. <laughs> I have no control over it. Okay. Now, what I'm suggesting is 
So that's another instance of a small instance of suffering. It really wasn't too bad. I mean, in other words, give me some credit. (laughs) But it was, there was some suffering. And there was a seeing of it and hearing this little, whatever it was in there, uh, doing its annoyed journey in the mind, and then a letting go of it and a feeling of lightheartedness and even really humor about it. And that all took, I would say, maybe a minute, minute and a half. But what I want to bring up is something like this. In meditation circles, and perhaps in all spiritual circles, the notion of selflessness, egolessness, generosity, not to cherish yourself, to cherish others over and above yourself, service, karma yoga, emptiness, just being nobody, These are highly esteemed values. And so what tends to happen is we take these on as new ideals and we've already had plenty of them that perhaps we've worn out. And then we come on the spiritual path and now we get a new one. And the new one is that we must be egoless. We must be selfless. We must cherish others before we cherish ourselves. And we have pictures of Mother Teresa over our desk and things of this sort. Now, it's not that there's anything wrong with that. It's wonderful. And I hope everyone in this room is sensitized to the possibilities of living a life that goes beyond just self-cherishing. Just all the time, me first. Mainly because it doesn't work. It doesn't work for us and it doesn't work for anyone else. It's a complete and utter disaster. But from the point of view of meditation, it's very subtle. And if we form images like that, spiritual ideals, those cover up, can cover up the actuality of just how we are from moment to moment. And periodically, of course, they crash to the ground. Now, because they're so valued, they also can become a source of great uh, harshness towards ourselves. So that if these images are tarnished or shattered in small or in big ways, or when we experience ourselves just being full of ourselves, we then, on top of whatever that is, place some condemnation. That is, we now have taken on a spiritual frame of reference, a reference, frame of reference of, of Buddha Dharma, perhaps. And once again, we have a personal problem and a defect. Just as we did with what we tended to think of as more psychological conditions. Now we call this spiritual. And so what I'm suggesting is Even with this, we have to learn how to bring the approach of a kind of attentiveness that's similar to the way a naturalist would look at things. It seems to be natural for the mind to do what it does, to continuously produce images about itself, to fabricate constantly what it is, what it was, and what it might be. All our minds seem to work that way. It seems to be part of nature. And so if we can relate to the egocentric tendencies that we seem to have, more than tendencies, they're 
actualities. Again, not negatively, where we then, in a sense, become egotistical about the ego, either way. But negatively is that we become pleased when we feel that we're selfless, and we become very disgusted when we feel that we're selfish and self-centered. And when we examine these instances, when they come up in the mind, we look at them not the way a naturalist would look at birds, as conditions, as part of nature that arise and pass away, that are homeless, that have no core, that don't belong to us, and that have their own lawfulness, that unfold in the way in which they want to unfold. I really had no control over that image coming up in my mind in the restaurant, none. It just decided that it was going to do what it did, and it did, and there I was with it. And that continues to go on, so that it's imperative that we learn how to relax with all of this. And to get very comfortable with our egotism. Not so much punishing ourselves for it, but having the most useful response, which is understanding. Maybe it's the only really appropriate response that can take us out of all of this, is understanding. The traps are really subtle. I remember I used to get a kind of perverse pleasure out of seeing it in Sri Aurobindo's ashram in India. Uh, Sri Aurobindo and a, a Western woman named the Mother, she was called the Mother, ran that ashram for many years. And I noticed in some of the good photographs of the Mother that she had eye makeup on and a little bit of mascara. And I always liked that. Somehow there's something ornery in me, or that is, because she was willing to, here she is, I'm the mother, you know, and she would, obviously was doing stuff with her eyes in the morning, getting it ready. See, it doesn't mean that she's less holy, nor does it mean that we're more holy, the more plain we are, because it's obvious that the mind can take plainness and make it into another image and walk around feeling fantastic, how holy I am, how plain I am, and make that into a virtue. And it's also, it seems to me anyway, obvious that one can have high heels, nail polish, a crazy hat, three-piece suit, whatever you, know, whatever you want, and be free. These are just materials that are used. Maybe they're fun, enjoyed, necessary in one's job, whatever. A source of, not a source of suffering or a problem at all. So it, it has to do with the relationship. And so it pushes us towards real liberation and real spirituality, which is free from all form and can respect form, can use form in very beautiful ways. Either conventional religious forms, monastic forms, and know how to use them because they can be very useful or conventional social forms, the way we dress under certain occasions, understanding that that isn't really the issue. The issue is always what we do with what's happening. So it seems to me the challenge is, if you're going to begin to work in the area of the self, of personal identity, and the ways in which, and if you feel that it's so, that... um, 
the massive suffering on this planet is largely due to self-centeredness and ego. The individual selves just being writ large in terms of countries when it becomes nationalism. It's the same dynamic. It doesn't work. The Dalai Lama uh, talks about what he calls wise selfishness, which is an interesting concept. And wise selfishness is that you serve others, which is the best thing you could do for yourself. Or is it actually the best thing you can do for yourself is to be kind to others? Again, if that becomes fashioned into an image, though, then we're back we're back where we started. So it's not easy because there's a very deep yearning in the mind to grasp on to forms and to feel secure once we have these forms. I'm a, and then whatever the latest is. And so it takes a great deal of courage and real, really careful observation, really getting to know ourselves. Okay, then there is a, an issue which perhaps is on some of your minds. Is it possible or even desirable for a person to live without any attachment to any images? None whatsoever. Wouldn't that be crazy, insane? Would you be, in, be put into a mental hospital? I mean, how would you know what to do? I mean, there was a song that uh, I remember some years ago about a cowboy, and he said the only reason he needs his outfit, because without his outfit, he wouldn't know who he was. But with his outfit, he knows he's a cowboy. (laughs) Well, what has been suggested by really all of the greatest spiritual teachers is that in back of all of these small conceptions of ourselves, no matter how shaped and energized, is real love and real fulfillment, real peace, real meaning. And we settle for far less when we spend our lives just trying to get better images to replace worse images and dressing them up and patching them up and getting new ones, trading them in. That can go on forever. And the path is letting it go. And just just being. Now, conventionally, you can still use the language of the culture. I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm a meditator. All of that's fine. It's our relationship to it. Okay. um, Did any of you find out anything in your research during the day? Any of you come upon some small sufferings and small liberations, particularly if it has to do with I and mine, but even if not? Jump ups aren't going to be there anymore. <laughs> and I almost started to cry. 
I, I was so attached to their beauty, and um, I immediately thought of yogurt. Good yogurt can go down in history, isn't it? <laughs> Anyone else see something and also let go of it or learn about it? Yes? Just in the walking meditation in the, in the hall up there, um, I was walking and I had my little space and I felt good about it. And someone came and got too close to me. It looked like we were all settled. And someone else came in and they got in real close. And then it seemed like they kept veering over closer to me. And so I realized that it didn't make Oh, but I I yeah, no, that's good. So now, when when they started to let's say move in on your turf, <laughs> so what happened? It was first of all, it was your turf, right? It was your walking. Yeah, I two of wood. I had <laughs> right. <laughs> right, and there was a little bit of suffering there, wasn't there? Right. Okay. Then you saw it. I'm just trying to repeat what you said. I want to make sure I understand. And then what happened? Well, I sort of walked with it a little bit, and then um, I accepted it. Accepted it meaning, were you, were you observing it, or did you talk yourself out of it? Or did your intelligence say, oh, this is ridiculous, this is not my lane. Let him have it. <laughs> there, I, I assume it's a him. Was it a him? No. <laughs> <laughs> Things are too predictable. Yeah. Okay. Lawful, excuse me, it's nature. Yeah. I, I did more of that. Yeah. Okay, and then it passed? Yeah. And then, could you feel the relief or the release? Yeah, but well, I didn't think about it much anymore. Okay. I, it was okay that he was here. Right. If you remember yesterday, what was suggested is... If you feel the suffering that goes on, no matter how small it is, and then, and then when the letting, if the letting go happens, and you also feel the relief or the release when the, when the letting go happens, if the mind can see both of these, it begins to learn what that whole process is about. And so it, it becomes slightly more intelligent for the future. <laughs> <laughs> and I pull this person to back if they, if they back up they get any further and how can it be so 
soon as I focused on that quality of me and the mind, it, 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 as I, I focused on it, it got larger for mm-hmm. a moment. Mm-hmm. It's just like this, you know, like this bubble that came up, right. you know, and then it just completely passed. And then, you know, Could you feel like a moment's relief when it passed? Or oh, you? Yeah, it was just gone. Mm-hmm. It, 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 the suffering was there as long as I wasn't looking at it. And the moments before I looked at it, when the mind was running through, what is this person doing? <laughs> How can they be so oblivious? That was when there was the suffering. But the moment I actually looked at the quality of me and the mind, there was no suffering there. Exactly. The moment I looked at it, it was just gone. See, now, and these things come up all day long in very small ways. And if we can learn to be sensitive to them, it can be very helpful. Yes? Was that a man who backed into you? It was. <laughs> <laughs> Just doing a sociological survey here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You better let that one go. Yeah. <laughs> but go ahead. Excuse me. I'm just rude sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that standing up for your rights, that people who let go are just patsies, that they just just walk? No, the letting go. It's not that. That's not, it can be, but that letting go has, is an inner response. Let me give you an example. There was a Tibetan Lama who came to the Cambridge Center and he gave a talk on uh, appreciation of what others do for us. Let's say you have a meal appreciating all that went into that. You know, the farmers and the trucks that brought it there, everything that went into you having a meal. Or you have a job and appreciating you working in this factory. And all that the boss had to do, you know, to get all the contacts and raise the capital and get the building built, etc., so that you could have your job, to have appreciation for that. And then he said that, but if someone... um, had a job there, and let's say it was promised $400 a week, and the boss only gave him $200, then this Lama asked us, well, what would you do? And people got really confused on that. And what he said was, it's, it's not that this is the only thing to do, but he said, well, one thing that is fine to do would be to be grateful for what the boss had done, you know, in providing you even with the $200, because of, it was all of his energy and effort that made that factory possible, and then sue him for the remaining $200. <laughs> okay. Now, you don't have to have hatred in your heart or even be attached. You can uh, uh, function uh, as, a, as a person in a society uh, using all the... Um, the vehicles or the mechanisms that exist to redress 
uh, trouble that's been done to you, etc. Letting go doesn't mean that you don't... It has nothing to do with objects. It's your relation to the... In other words, you could be a multi-millionaire and be free, or you could have nothing and be in bondage. See, the, the letting go is your relationship to whatever it is, but it's not necessarily in the form. It's not in the particular form. You could defend yourself and inside be free. Do you, do you see what I'm trying to say? I, I hear you. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Why does it follow that if somebody is learning to be free that they are walked over or that they're a patsy? Why does that follow? I'm trying to understand your reasoning. I don't know. I guess because there's just a lot of confusion about being in the world. I'm not sure if this will help, but maybe a little bit. Presumably the Buddha was quite free. For our sakes, let's hope he was free, very free. And yet, was a highly dynamic person, very skillful in action, who accomplished an enormous amount in one lifetime, so much so that the momentum is still going on now, and here's this building where it's still going on. And he must have been just a consummate artist of letting go, of not getting caught anywhere but yet was very, very effective. Gandhi was effective. Mother Teresa is effective. You can be effective. There even, it's even, I once asked a Zen master um, if during World War II he, uh, he was, had a chance, if he would have had a chance to assassinate Adolf Hitler, would he have done it? Because if he had killed Adolf Hitler, he could have saved, let's say, many, many other lives. Now, you know, we're not supposed to kill, etc. And he paused for a long time. He wasn't flippant about it. And he said, in his broken Korean, you know who I'm talking and he said, sometimes maybe kill is good. Okay. Now, he also acknowledged that he might, if he would, the person who would do that might have to pay the karma of killing, but the intention was one of really preventing suffering. So, it's more complex. It's not, we're not cardboard figures just because you... Uh, step onto the path. Life is very challenging and it's not always clear as to what the right thing to do is and ultimately each one of us has to decide what is right for us to do from moment to moment. The letting go is uh, developing a relationship to whatever it is that we do that's light that can let it happen and then when it's done it's over with. So if you get literal about the content, that spiritual, that's what I meant about the, the cosmetics. You know, you would think, well, if somebody's letting go, they've let go of cosmetics, they've let go of high heels, they've let go of three-piece suits, they must be more spiritual. Not necessarily. The real question is, have they really let go? Or have they got a new attachment, which is to an image of letting go? of somebody, a, letting, a person who's let go looks this way. They don't have the following possessions. I had one teacher who was a, a millionaire, a yogi, an Indian, um, extraordinarily free person. I don't know if I've met anyone more free. He seemed really free. I worked very intensively with him for four, four years. And part of what he did was he was free with money. He used his own money very skillfully. 
for all kinds of good things, and was very light about it. He valued money, he respected it, and he took responsibility for the fact that he had a lot of it. Now, if you get into these black and white things, you say, well, how could he be a yogi? He's a millionaire. Yogis can't be millionaires. They have to be poor. I've met some poor yogis who are, you know, have a ways to go in terms of certain things. So that, that's what I, you can't get to. Does that help at all? Okay, good. Anyone else um, find any small stuff hanging around IMS? You're nodding. Only big stuff. Huh? No, I just want small stuff. Yeah. What? Your kind of people. It sounds a bit, but let me qualify it so that you don't throw the whole thing out. I think there is a rule that if you sign up to be on the uh, special foods line, then only those who've signed up should go to special foods. Isn't that correct? Yes. Okay. And if you didn't sign up, for those of you who do it, if you didn't sign up for special foods and you're going over there, it needn't be an egotistical thing or even an I, mine, selfing kind of thing on your part. It could just be an objective observation, seeing that they're not supposed to do that, that does undermine the system. That means that those people who signed up, perhaps they won't have food. It is true. So that there's some, so that the whole thing could have happened. You could have even, not necessarily snitched to the kitchen, but you know, perhaps even uh, told some of that, you know, really, or whatever. And you inside could have not been, not um, attached to it. You could, it's just a matter of, of uh, this is the way the arrangement is set up for a reason. It's an intelligence behind it. It's not just random. And that if we all agree, then the thing will work. And if we don't, it's going to cause problems and resentments. The suffering was that I was condemning. That's and it. I was okay. Saying, you people aren't supposed to be there. You're, you're bad. You know, I was definitely being judgmental about what was going on. Right. So that, that's, that's it. Yeah. One last one, especially if it's really small. <laughs> You're going to have to, uh, 
You're going to have to belt it out. Yeah. Well, your mind was better than mine. <laughs> My mind thought, couldn't they have done it during an hour when we're not sitting? <laughs> okay. Why don't we have a moment's silence? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.